We're going to be looking in Psalm 22 today, a message I call from my mother's womb, Psalm 22 and verse 9. Let's all stand together as we reverence the reading of God's word, Psalm 22 and verse 9. But you are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breasts. I was cast upon you from birth. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. May God bless the reading of his word today is my prayer. You may be seated. On Mother's Day, our thoughts will center around this ancient psalm. David was born both uh, to be both a prophet and a king. He was used many times then to write songs that would be a part of the Hebrew hymnal. Uh, but he also wrote songs that were full of prophecies. Often the experiences of David would mirror image uh, along with some of the experiences that his greater son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, would one day have. But that's not the case with this psalm. We look in vain for anything in David's life that would account for the words of the song. It is very clear to us that the Holy Spirit moved David's prophetic pen as he focused our attention centuries before it happened on dark Calvary. And though our focus today will be on this portion of the text, from my mother's womb you have been my God, we must take a few moments to see how this psalm speaks of Jesus. The psalm begins, Psalm 22 and verse 1. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? If that sounds familiar to you, it should. It's one of Jesus' cries from the cross of Calvary. Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? Many have tried to explain this away by saying, well, you know, Jesus knew the words of this psalm, so he was just making it appear that he was fulfilling them by making that cry. But how could Jesus, with his feet and hands nailed to a cross, so orchestrate the situation that his enemies would do exactly what this psalm said they would do hundreds of years before. Psalm 22 and verse 18, a passage that is referred to in all four of the gospel accounts, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Soldiers did that. How could Jesus have so worked that the Roman soldiers on the order of Pontius Pilate would scourge him? Not something they usually did with crucifixion because it was altogether painful enough. The scourging. And yet David said, I can count all my bones. They look and stare at me. How could Jesus have seen to it that those who hated him and opposed his every move, the Jewish religious leaders, would say exactly what this psalm predicted they would say? He trusted in the Lord. Let him rescue him. Let him deliver him since he delights in him. David knew nothing of the horrors of crucifixion since it hadn't been invented yet. But he writes, verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. The congregation of the wicked has enclosed me. They pierced my hands, and my feet. He 
See, it's because of this amazing prophetic or messianic psalm that the New King James translators decided to capitalize all the pronouns. This is a song about Jesus. Again, pointing primarily to those dark days of Calvary. But that's not all the song told us. Psalm twenty-two, twenty-five: My praise shall be of you in the great assembly. I will pay my vows before those who fear him. The poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him will praise the Lord. You can give an amen to that. Let your heart live forever. All the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nation shall worship before you. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth shall eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust shall bow before him. Even who cannot, he cannot keep himself alive, a posterity shall serve him. It will be recounted of the Lord to the next generation. They will come and declare his righteousness to a people who will be born that he has done this. There's a glorious conclusion, you see, in store that the psalmist brings. But our text today that I've chosen out of this psalm also points out that there was a glorious beginning. That long before that dark day of Calvary, there was another day. A day, by the way, we also still celebrate. A day we call Advent. We celebrate it as Christmas. It's the time of the birth of Jesus. Verse 9. You are he who took me out of the womb. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. I was cast upon you from my birth. From my mother's womb you have been my God. So while these verses as well have a specific meaning and reference to our Lord Jesus. And we'll see that as we go along this morning. We also see quickly that there are four statements in this passage. That refer to what God did by a very special young lady. And through, working through a very special young lady. We know her name. Though the psalmist did not. We do. Her name is Mary. I must say that there's not a shred of evidence. For Mary's sinless perfection. The Bible doesn't teach that. Not a shred of evidence for her perpetual virginity. The Bible doesn't teach that. There's not an a, a, a indication anywhere in Scripture that Mary was ever designed to be a co-redeemer so that we could pray for her to intercede for us now and in the hour of our death. None of those things are taught in Scripture. The inventions of the minds and religious traditions of others, but though none of these things are there, that does not diminish what the Holy Spirit did say. Luke 1.28, and the angel came in unto her and said, Hail thou that art highly favored. The Lord is with thee. Blessed are thou among women. And so today we're going to see in this passage what is identified in the title that I gave it. From my mother's womb you have been my God. Whether we think of David or of Jesus... Uh, this is a testimony that they would have been saying looking back on their life. And it is a testimony that all of us long for our children to have. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. Our passage shows us then how that God worked and how God can still work to create this testimony. 
through the godly influence of a mother and a father. And we can see in this then a pattern for us in creating this testimony in our children. From my mother's womb, you've been my God. It plays out, first of all, in establishing what I'm going to call a rhythm of worship. It was this same psalmist David who famously wrote, I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. That's Psalm 122 and verse 1. And you've heard me say it many times. I started going to church nine months before I was born. Many of you did too. This is a testimony that you either have or you don't. Parents, it may be too late for you to give that testimony to your children. It may not, however, be too late for them to have a testimony like this. I've gone to church my whole life. As far back as I can remember, we were going to church. They may even have this testimony. I remember when we didn't go to church, but then I remember when we started. You can still give them that testimony. The great preacher Adrian Rogers once said, We don't come to church on Sunday to worship. On Sunday, we bring our worship to church. And that is a crucial reminder for all of us today. You see, we are establishing for our children uh, something that we hear a lot about these days, creating a rhythm of life. Now, we used to call them a habit. Uh, We used to call them maybe a routine. But both routine and habit has uh, obtained apparently a negative connotation in today's world. And so instead we talk about a rhythm, creating a a rhythm of worship. How do we do that? Well, it's a a whole week-long thing that we do. Uh, we do it when we sit down at the table, if we sit down at a table or, or wherever it is, and we pause for a moment and we say a prayer of blessing on our food. We create this when we read Scripture with our children, when we have prayer with them at night before we put them into bed. We are then leading them to the culmination of what will be a week's worth of worship, a week's worth of prayer, maybe a pray, playing that Christian music in your home or in your car, a whole week's worth of Bible study, of Bible reading, of Bible lessons and prayer, Christian music. And then on Sunday morning, we say, I was glad, I was glad, well, it's time to go to church. Uh, now, if you haven't been in the habit of going to church, I will admit that the first time or two you bring your little one to church, they might howl like a banshee, whatever a banshee is. They might not like it a bit. But I'll tell you what, if you bring them around here, they're going to find out that people love them at Faith Baptist, that there's people who care about them, who will spend time with them. And first thing you know, they're going to be saying, I want to go to church. It's church day. You give children half a chance. And they will love coming to church. Now don't get me wrong today. I'm not telling you that everything about the Christian life is just all about going to church. But I will tell you that Christians are a whole lot like cars. Uh, When they start missing, it isn't long before they quit altogether. It's really hard, you see, for us to maintain our spiritual conduct and devotion without actively participating in worship and fellowship. And if it's difficult for us to do that as adults, it's almost impossible for kids. Almost. 
It's true that many teens come to Christ with little or no influence from their parents. It is true that many young adults come to Christ with little or no influence from their parents. Some may have been abandoned altogether by their parents. Some have even lost your parents. I've got a glorious promise for you today from Psalm 68 and 5. Where it speaks of God as a father of the fatherless. As a defender of widows. As God in His holy habitation. And in this glorious promise, God sets the solitary in families. You may be here today as a very isolated believer. You might be the only believer in Christ in your whole family. I got good news for you. God has set the solitary in a family. It is a family of faith. And we're glad to have you here. It may not be your testimony that you went to church before you were even born because your mother went there. It may not be your testimony that you had godly parents who raised you to know the Lord Jesus Christ. But yet somehow, maybe through the influence of a friend, you came to know Jesus and now you have that testimony. He's my Savior. And He gives you this promise. I set the solitary, God says, in families. We're building then our thoughts around this testimony. From my mother's womb, you have been my God. And how do we do that? And number one, we need to establish a rhythm of worship at home. I'm not talking about just coming to church, but I am talking about that. And I'm talking about those crucial times when your children hear you pray, parents. Crucial times when your children hear you read the Word of God. Crucial times. When they may hear you sing or at the very least kind of hum along maybe with the people who are singing on the radio. Does it matter? Oh, yes, it does. You are worshiping your God through the week and then on Sunday, glorious day, we get to bring our worship to church. Second thing that he talks about then is to make our children know that they are God's work. We establish then a rhythm of worship then. Make them know that they are God's work. Verse 9, but you are he who took me out of the womb. Though I quoted this passage earlier, I want to bring it to your attention again. Psalm 127 and verse 3. Lo, children are an heritage of the Lord and the fruit of the womb is his reward. A heritage is like an an endowment or an inheritance, a reward is something well known to us. Children are presented in Scripture as a blessing from God. We want to give our children then the testimony from my mother's womb, you've been my God, then we're going to have to make sure that our children know that they are God's work and that they are God's blessing. And we make sure they know that from the earliest time they know anything. We've all been disturbed this week by a lot of rhetoric thrown around in defense of Roe versus Wade. I'm not going to jump into that fray today, but I do want to point out the testimony of David and of the son of David, Jesus. And that is that God is the one who took them from the womb. 
It's their way of saying that God is the one who gives us life. He is the source of our existence. Years later, John the Apostle would write, John chapter 1 and verse 4, In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then in verse 9, that was the true light, which gives light to every man coming into the world. Life, you see, begets life. And while science has no credible explanation for how life began, the Bible gives it to us right here. Life comes from life. In Him, that's Jesus Christ, was life. And that life is the light of men. You want to see an argument for the existence of God? Look in the mirror. God gives light to every person who comes into the world. How? Because you are alive. You have life. Every birth is a testimony to the fact that there's a God. And if you've ever given birth or witnessed a birth, you know what an incredible and powerful testimony that is. Make sure our children know and that you raise them to know that they are in this world because of the work of God. I could stop there, but I've got another couple of passages I need to give you today. Job chapter 31 and verse 13. Job was actually in this passage talking about uh, making a defense in a way of, uh, of accusations that were being hurled against him. That God was punishing him for some secret sin. And, and so Job had to defend himself. And one of the ways that he did that was he brought up the way that he treated his servants or his employees. And this is what he said, verse 13, If I have despised the cause of my male or female servant when they complained against me, what then shall I do when God rises up? When he punishes, how shall I answer him? Did not he who made me in the womb make them? Did not the same one fashion us in the womb? Remember that Job, of all the 66 books in the Bible, Job is probably the oldest one. And all the way back to those days, Job knew God forms us in the womb. God makes every child. I'm not sure if it's still politically correct or not, but when I grew up, we were still teaching, and we still sing it around here, uh, red, uh, red or yellow, black or white. They're all precious in His sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. All of them. Why? Because He made them all. That's one statement. But then there's another. Psalm 139, verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. My soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written every one of them, the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them. David spoke of how God had knitted him together. David would speak of how God formed his frame, that is, his bones, his structure. And though David probably didn't know all that we know about it, we know that God could even see him when he was an unformed substance. Hmm. 
I am fearfully and wonderfully made. From the time your children were born, and as soon as they're able to learn and know anything, you need to raise them up to understand that God has made them and fashioned them. That their existence was not the product of divine or, or random chance, but the product of divine determination. There's more to this at work than just DNA. It's not some incredible act of blind chance. Their gender was determined by God. Their hair color and eye color was determined by God. I personally wish that God would have made me a little taller, but He didn't. God decided that too. How do I know it? Jesus said it. Which one of you by taking thought can add a cubit to your stature? You don't have any control over that. God did. God did. God did. We want our children then to have the testimony that from my mother's womb thou hast been my God. Number one, we need to establish a rhythm of worship. Number two, we need to make sure that they know they are the work of God. Number three, we need to teach our children to believe and trust in Jesus. You made me trust while on my mother's breast. Now, obviously, this passage speaks to us of the mystery that Jesus was fully man and fully God. It's a passage that gives us just a hint of an awareness of what was going on while the infinite an eternal God was compacted to the span of a virgin's womb and born in a stable in Bethlehem and nursed on the breast of his mother as a helpless infant. As a baby in the flesh, he would know what babies know. But as God, <laughs> oh, as God, he knew much more. He knew that he was protected. Psalm 91 and verse 11 tells us that. And even though the devil misquoted the passage and his temptation, doesn't change the reality of what God had said. For he that's God shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee in all thy ways. Jesus was protected by God and was able to trust in that protection. And in his divinity then could say that from the moment of his birth, in that mystery of mysteries, fully man, fully God, he was trusting in God. Now we can't say that of ourselves. Uh, as an infant, we, we can't trust in God. We don't, we don't know God. We don't know who we are, much less to know who God is. Uh, we, we can't say that. But we can raise our children with the awareness, not only that they're God's work, that is that God has fashioned them, but that they need God's salvation and that they need God's redemption. Because you see, something else is at work in their life, and that's the curse. Something else is at work in their life, and that is the power of sin. And those children that you think are very perfect when you can hold them like this, before long you're chasing after them like this. Uh, you know, you never teach a child to lie, but they learn. Uh, you never teach them to be selfish, but they learn. Uh, you don't teach them to blame others. Did you do this? No, sis, sis. You don't teach them to do that. But then do it. You see, God is at work to make them the person that they are, but that we must also remember sin is at work. And that they're under the power of the curse. And that means that they'll need salvation and redemption. 
There's a time in their life when they're safe. They're not saved, they're safe. They don't know what sin is. They don't know of themselves as a sinner. They don't understand that Jesus died on the cross, although we can teach it to them. They don't really understand what that means. But there's going to come a time when the Holy Spirit is going to convict them of the reality of their sin so that when the Bible says that all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, they're going to know that that means me. And it's the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit alone who can make that truth come alive in that little heart. And then and only then then can that person understand, that child understand what it means to trust in Jesus Christ and believe and be saved. I've told you before, as far as I know, I was saved the first time I ever got under conviction. May that testimony be true of all of your children as well. I don't know of anything any better. We want to, our children then to have the testimony that from my mother's womb you've been my God. And then we need to establish a rhythm of worship that culminates in our uh, Sunday public time of worship. We need to teach them that they're the work of God. And we need to teach them that while they need salvation and redemption, that salvation and redemption are available. Whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. One more thing, we're done. He said, I was cast upon you from birth. And again, this statement applies particularly to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he was cast upon the Lord. That's a statement that speaks of his consecration and dedication, much like what you all are doing here today. Like Samuel, who was given to the Lord, the Levites of the Old Testament, who were given to the Lord, our Lord Jesus was the Lord's. He was cast upon him, upon his God from the time of his birth. We could see that play out in his age of 12 when he said, I must be about my father's business. If our children are the work of God and they are, and if they're fashioned by God and they are, and they must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and they have, then they too belong to God because he both made them and redeemed them. Listen, parents. The hardest things for us to do is to cast our children on the Lord. You see, there comes a time when they must be turned loose. In that famous psalm I quoted earlier, uh, where we are told that children are a heritage of the Lord, the psalmist compares them to arrows, arrows that must be sharpened, and arrows then that must be pointed, and arrows that must be propelled in the right direction. There comes a time when we have to turn them loose to live their own lives and, yes, deal with their own consequences. Sin is ever at work on them and the enemy is constantly working. They might stay on the path that you directed them or they may not. And if they don't, it doesn't mean necessarily you failed. What we can say if they don't stay on that path is that it means that they failed. But we remind ourselves as we confront or deal with their failure that, by the way, we failed a time or two ourselves. And we pray then and we pray it often. The Word of God that tells us in Proverbs 22 and verse 6, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. When he is old. When he is old. You may not live to see it. Pray it anyway. Train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he's old, he'll not depart.
from it. You see, there's a strong likelihood they'll return. Thou hast been my God from my mother's womb. That's the testimony that we want our children to have. And I pray this morning that we've all listened carefully as we look in this passage. Maybe you'll take it home with you and look at it again. Because it gives us some vital things that we do to try to establish that as best we can. So that our children know who Jesus is and determine to follow Him.